Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. So I have done uh, numerous funerals at the Springfield Veterans Cemetery. And if you've never been to one of these military uh, funerals, you know, you have a 21-gun salute. Uh, you have the folding and presentation of the American flag to the uh, widow or, or widower. And it's really a very memorable part of uh, the funeral. My own dad, who was a veteran, both of my grandfathers were veterans, and they had this uh, folding and presentation of the flag as well. There's a solemnity to this, a, uh, there's honor, there's, there's respect that goes along uh, with this symbol of the American flag that represents all the sacrifices that men and women have made. Now, by itself... Uh, it's just cloth, all right? It's three colors sewn together, but when connected to our country, it emanates this, these feelings of, of patriotism and appreciation for the sacrifice that, that people have made. It's an emblem. It's a sign. But it's... You know, the, the, the flag didn't fight the war, right? It doesn't fight wars. The flag doesn't make decisions in the halls of Washington. It's not a living thing, but it, it's an emblem, it's a sign, it's a symbol. Now, there's another kind of symbol in the Old Testament, a rather odd one, some may think, but it was the circumcision of a Jew. And you're thinking, holy mackerel, we're talking about circumcision in December? Just just hold on a minute, okay? Circumcision was used as a sign of identity and obedience. In Genesis 17, we read about God changing the name from Abram to Abraham and making a promise that he was going to make his descendants his people. Right? In verse 8, he says, I will be their God. In verse 10, he says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So throughout the Old Testament, God would recognize the Israelites as his people and they were circumcised as a sign that God was their God, okay? Now, one thing about that sign is that it was permanent and it was effective as a constant reminder. But again, it was just an external observance. It was a symbol. It was not the essence of the covenant. There's a difference between the circumcision and the covenant itself. 
Now, not only did circumcision serve as identifying the people of God, but it also served as a reminder of Israel to obey the law of Moses. So be, to be circumcised meant to obligate yourself to obey the entire law. As Israel began to disassociate circumcision from the importance of obedience, Moses wrote as a way of reminder, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you shall live. So you had the external sign, but it was to be have significance because of what was going on in the heart. You were to obligate a person to obey the law from the heart. Now, if you're like me, I've often wondered, why the male foreskin? Uh, it just seems a little creepy, right? I talked to one of our, uh, we used to have some, uh, several men from Africa that went to our church and they would go to Drury and they said that they would, they would have this a circumcision ceremony at like eight to ten years old publicly in front of the whole tribe. Like, whoa, okay, <laughs> that's odd. But why? Why circumcision? If you think about this, this is the, the chief area where mankind falls and it outwardly demonstrates the sinfulness of mankind in the area of sensuality. And so I think God, and I'm not saying this encompasses the whole thing, but it makes sense when you think about it this way, that it utilizes as an external sign, instead of giving in to passion, circumcision is obliging the man to obedience, and it's identifying him as a child of God. But again, it was a sign. It was not the substance. Now, God utilized a sign in the New Testament that actually parallels circumcision. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And I want you to see how Paul draws on this identification principle with circumcision and then draws a line to baptism. In him... Also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God and raised him from the dead. Now, that verse is chock full of stuff that we just don't have time to investigate, but I just want you to see the, the line that's drawn from circumcision to now baptism. So there's a, there's a spiritual circumcision or a work of the heart that's to take place. And there was often this reminder in the Old Testament about you're to have a, a spiritual circumcision or stuff going on in the heart so that it, the external observance is an accurate picture of what's going on, okay? And then what Paul says is that baptism makes this same parallel. In baptism, we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it's to be representative of something that's going on in the heart. So baptism is an outward act that demonstrates the spiritual reality of every believer 
being dead to sin, having that sin buried, crucified, and then we raise again in Christ. We're identified with the burial and raising of the dead from, uh, for Christ. Romans 6, 4 reiterates the point. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Listen, at a bare minimum, we could say this. There are tremendous benefits to what Christ did on the cross that applies to us today, and that we need to remind ourselves of those benefits. But even more than that, there's an identity so that who I am is wrapped up in that work of Christ. So let's look at some of this. We are identified with Christ's death so that when Christ died, I died. Well, what did I die to? Number one, I died to the law. Because of Christ, I have no need to seek God's acceptance outside of what Christ has done or the grace of God. That's an amazing statement to think about. And we get all mixed up about this, even within our own little tribes, because we think we've got to follow the rules and do this or that. We've got these subcultural codes that each church has in order to be accepted. And what we think, we just say, well, I guess then that means I can't really be loved by God or accepted by God unless I do those things. I've got to be a member of this political party, or I've got to wear these clothes. I've got to school my kids this way. I can't do this. I can't do that. And all that is wrapped up into that we hope has this solution of, I'm okay with God. That's wrong thinking. That's not how God accepts us. It's based on what Christ has done, not on what we do. I'm also dead to sin. You say, now wait a minute, Kevin. I still sin, but our identity is no longer sin, okay? Theologically speaking, as a Christian, now hold on here, as a Christian, I'm not a sinner. I sin, but my identity is not as a sinner. My identity is a child of God, Christ in me, I'm in Christ, who occasionally sins. But I'm not obligated to sin because I am dead to sin. Now, I still have a flesh, I have the culture. I have the devil. We have all these temptations. So I get that I sin, but my identity is in Christ. That is who I am. So even if I identify myself as an alcoholic or some kind of addiction and I, I brand myself as that, I don't think that's right thinking. I could say I struggled as an alcoholic, but now I'm in Christ. That's a whole different way to look at it. If I see myself as a sinner or with some addiction and that's my identity, what's that going to lead to? Just doing those things. But I have the power of Christ in me. So our former identity, which was marked by sin, has died. And I have a new nature in Christ. And I'm dead to self. By our union with Christ, ownership has changed. I am no longer calling the shots. Christ is calling the shots in my life. 
I don't even own my body. You have people, you know, crowing about, it's my body, I can do. Well, actually, no, it's not. All right? You were created by God. And as a Christian, my body, I'm to be a steward of my body. You're saying, well, then you need to get rid of that extra 20 pounds. I don't disagree with you, okay? And we're working on it. But still, okay, it's not my body. It's what God has given me during this time on earth. But I'm dead to self so that when my body, the passions, my flesh wants one thing and the will of God is the other thing, I got to do the other thing whatever that is. And I have the ability in Christ to say no to every temptation. It doesn't matter what it is or what addiction it is. In Christ, he gives me all the tools to say no to every temptation. Now, be smart about it, okay? I remember talking to one guy who said that he, he uh, was going to strip clubs to witness. I said, dude, Seriously, okay? I don't think so, all right? That's foolish, right? So you don't put yourself in situations where you know that there's going to be great temptation. I'm dead to sin. Next, when Christ rose, I rose. There's great benefit to Christ rising that I experience, and I need to consider myself alive in Christ so that Christ is my life. I no longer have to live the Christian life in my own effort or own strength. So when I abide in Christ, as John 15 says, I recognize Christ is in me, that he's giving me the power and the will to do what is right in every moment so that I live moment by moment, faith by faith in the Christ who is indwelling me. And Christ is my security. And I live by moment-by-moment moment dependence upon Christ as my security and my significance. Now, this is tough in our culture, where we are identified by our job, our house, the car we drive, but that is really not our identity. Our identity is in Christ, right? I'd rather be like Sam Walton who was a gazillionaire, and he drove an old pickup, all right, right? That's not the identity. My identity is in Christ. Security, significance, wrapped up in Christ. And Christ is my sanctification. I'm not obliged to religious systems, but I find my pleasure in allowing Christ to live his life through me as I submit to him step by step. So, Baptism is a public proclamation to remind ourselves of our identity in Christ. It's also used as a way to consecrate ourselves to God. Now listen, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that's where it starts. You make the decision that I'm going to find the forgiveness of my sins upon what Christ has done. And then you follow him in obedience with baptism. Now, baptism points to one who's truly free from sin 
and has this hope in Christ. I hate to bust your bubble, but religion does not set you free, right? I mean, you could be a God-fearing Catholic. You can be a faithful church-attending Baptist. You can be a consistent communion-taking Lutheran. You can be a tongue-speaking Assembly of God person. You can be a catechized Presbyterian. And I might add, you can be a faithful, church-going, non-denominational person, okay? And none of those things do anything about your sin. Right? All that religious activity doesn't eradicate one sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, once you are declared righteous by God in Christ, what else is there to do to be accepted by God? Nothing. Now, because of that, I want to live my life in dedication to him, and I want to please him, and I want to love him. But that's not to be accepted by God. That's because I love God, and I want to see his kingdom expand. So baptism recognizes the source of our freedom. Now, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, do you remember what he said right after that? What did he say? Baptizing them. This is part of the commission of the church to produce consecrated believers. When the Holy Spirit said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, this was a command. He did not give them several options and say, oh, well, you could be baptized, I suppose, too. No, it was a command. 3,000 people came to Christ on that day and 3,000 were baptized. I wouldn't dare have shown up on my wedding day and say, you know, I'll marry this person, but I'm not going to wear that stupid wedding ring. All right? There would be problems if that was said. Why? Because that's a, that's a physical reminder, symbol of the commitment that I made to my wife. The Lord has called us to be baptized as a means of public identification and consecration to Christ. Yet listen, there is widespread non-compliance with people who call themselves Christians and not following this command. It's really sad. In spite of all the direct scriptures, and we still have, throughout, at least in our culture, a lot of unbaptized believers. I mean, when a, when a church accumulates people who want to make no public identification to Christ, that's a problem. And woe unto the church that does not talk about it and makes that easy to do. It may be hard to sometimes know whether, you know, you love somebody enough or whether you forgive it enough or whether you're following a certain command. You know, you want to, but you're just not sure if you've 
obeyed it like the way you should. But listen, when it comes to baptism, I mean, that's pretty easy to figure out. You've either been baptized or you haven't, right? We can plainly observe that. Indifference and disobedience toward baptism leaves really no doubt whether one is fully embracing the lordship of Christ in their life. And let's just talk turkey here for a second. If a, if a new believer wasn't willing to be baptized, what confidence is there on the seriousness of their confession? You have a right to say, dude, you got to really think about this. I mean, if, if a new convert in the first century was willing to be baptized, they understood that there was going to be a price to pay because they were making this public, whether it was in the Roman culture or Jewish culture, both cultures. And that would only happen if once they came to Christ, they were baptized immediately or shortly thereafter. Now, a question often arises about why baptism is so closely aligned with salvation in the New Testament. I mean, I don't think anybody argues when it comes to a wedding, having a wedding ring so closely aligned with making a covenant in marriage. We know the difference between the ring and the covenant. But people have a hard time making a distinction between baptism and faith in Christ. Baptism and the covenant God makes with us. One is kind of a, a result or an ancillary kind of thing, and the other is a substance. I mean, listen, if I am sending Janet off on a trip to see her friends and she has to fly on a plane and she's running late, and I said, hey, you better hurry up to catch your plane and, hey, grab your scarf on the way out the door. Now, grabbing her scarf is not a necessary stipulation to get on the plane, Right? I mean, we have to recognize the difference between what is necessary and what is a subsequent or related action. And so, repenting of our disbelief and believing the gospel, that's necessary for salvation. Baptism follows that as an act of obedience, as an act of consecration and affirming our identity in Christ. And so being immersed is this physical analogy of our union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And when you think about it, you had all of these Old Testament laws, ceremonies, ordinances that the Jewish people had to follow, the, the washings, right, uh, the temple services, all these different laws governing Israel, and now under the New Testament. We're not under that. But he gives us two things that we are to do to remind ourselves as Christians of the significance of Christ in our life. And what is it? Baptism and communion. Those two things. Now, that's not all there is to obedience in Christ, but there are those two observances or signs that God has given for us. And somewhere along the line, it has lost significance for many. 
Asian Access, a Christian missions agency in South Asia, listed a series of serious questions some church planners had been asking new believers who were considering baptism. Now, they didn't say what country this was because they didn't want to compromise the missionaries that were there. But the country was predominantly Hindu. And they saw this growth of Christianity, and they had the need to just really be frank with believers when they were making this commitment to Christ. Here were the seven questions. And I ask as I read this, can you imagine somebody asking you this today in America? Number one, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Whoa. Now, some of you here may know what that's like because your family rejected you when you came to Christ. And if you grew up Hindu, that would be a likely result. So if you're going to get baptized and make it public, you know what's coming next. Are you willing to do that? Number two, are you willing to lose your job? Your boss may fire you once he finds out you're a Christian. Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Number five, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Six, are you willing to go to prison? Seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? Can you imagine an American church giving those questions to be a member of a church? You're going to be involved in this ministry. We've got some questions to ask you first. I mean, you'd be seen as, this is way too extreme, man. It's a sobering reminder of what some of our brothers and sisters have to go through. And maybe it reminds us how far the church in America has slipped. Now, I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not, I'm not here to hoist upon you, you know, all of these extra rules and regulations. If you know us, that's the farthest thing from what we do. But we got to still be serious about our commitment to Christ. On the wall of President Lyndon Johnson's White House office hung a framed letter by General Sam Houston to Johnson's great-grandfather Baines more than a hundred years before. Baines had led Sam Houston to Christ. And Houston was a changed man, no longer coarse and belligerent, but he was peaceful and content. And the day came for Houston to be baptized. And this was an incredible event for anybody to witness, especially who knew Houston before. And after his baptism, Houston did something pretty extraordinary. He offered to pay half of the local minister's salary. And when someone said, why in the world would you want to do that? He said this. He said, my pocketbook was baptized too. It had a very real and practical meaning to Sam Houston. Somebody after the first service told me, yeah, you know, there's more to that story that when the pastor baptized him and said that his sins were washed away with baptism, uh, baptizing, and Houston said, well, I feel sorry for those fish. <laughs> Listen, this morning we are faced 
with how serious we are about our relationship to Christ. This is not meant to put on some guilt trip, but just to be honest about our relationship with him. If it's genuine, our profession of faith, then are you baptized? And if you're not, and you know Christ, then what's holding you back? You may not know it, but we have a baptismal right there. And we're going to baptize some people today. And if you haven't been baptized and you want to join the crew that already signed up, then I invite you to join us. All right? So this is what I'm going to do. Those that are being baptized, we got this front row available. You go ahead and come and let's have a seat right here. And then we are going to conduct our baptism. Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope today's message gives you encouragement and hope. If you would like more information about the church, you can go to cccspringfield.org.